Listen all month as ReachMD XM157 explores The Great Debate, a special series discussing the future of public health policy in America. You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. MRSA has been around for decades as a nosocomial acquired infection, but now we're seeing a virulence in the community acquired MRSA that is spreading into the hospitals. Is it the genotype or are we responsible? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, your host, and with me today is Dr. Donald Goldman. He is Senior Vice President at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI. His career in clinical infectious diseases and epidemiology with a focus on hospital-acquired infection spans more than three decades. He remains on the Children's Hospital clinical staff at Children's Hospital Boston. He is Professor of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and Professor of Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the Harvard School of Public Health. Today we're discussing community-acquired MRSA, and thank you for taking the time to talk with us, Dr. Goldman. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. So MRSA, um, for any of us practicing for a while, is not new. When did the present community outbreak of resistance begin to be identified? And importantly, how is it different from the nosocomial infection? Well, it's hard to know when something like this really begins, but certainly over the last few years, it's become evident that it's quite common in the community. It certainly wasn't present at all 10 years ago. So somewhere in that time period, it, it's emerged. It differs in some fundamental ways from the healthcare-associated MRSA. First of all, so far at least, it's much more sensitive to antibiotics. Many of the antibiotics that are not at all effective for healthcare strains are still effective for the community-acquired strain. Uh, let's give a couple of examples. Bactrim is still effective uh, as, as is clindamycin in many instances. In addition, it has an entirely different repertoire of genes that control virulence factors. And one of the most widely discussed is so-called Panton-Valentin-Leukocidin, or PVL. Whether or not this particular virulence factor is responsible for the virulence of the organism in practice is still unknown. But in addition, the organism seems much more comfortable on the skin. It seems to be able to persist on the skin and to spread among people pretty uh, easily, perhaps more so than the healthcare-associated strains. Were any instigating factors identified in this outbreak? No. We always suspect that the widespread use of antibiotics to which the staff would be resistant might play a role. For example, we use a lot of first-generation cephalosporins, uh, cephalexin, for example, that would not be effective and might help encourage the spread of MRSA. Certainly, if you look back at the emergence of penicillin resistance when penicillin came out, it was thought that the combination of an easily transmitted organism that's carried in the nose and on the skin with the widespread use of penicillin-type antibiotics were responsible for the emergence of penicillin-resistant strains. Are we responsible for not recognizing it sooner? Would it have made a difference? I don't think so. You know, it was picked up pretty quickly in pediatric hospitals in Chicago and in the Houston area. And uh, there was a fair amount of attention given to those strains when they did emerge. I remember a fair number of publications, some press coverage, and so forth. And some of the cases, even early on, were quite dramatic. Uh, you talk now about these very severe cases and some deaths, but right from the beginning, there were some severe cases of very bad uh, cellulitis, even necrotizing fasciitis, which is unusual with staph, and uh, necrotizing pneumonia that was uh, sometimes fatal. So you know, short of having a very comprehensive surveillance nationwide for anything that might happen, 
I think we were pretty quick. In addition, there now is a very good surveillance system run by the CDC. Uh, it's a network of around, as I recall, eight regional uh, regions or states that canvass systematically for the emergence of staph-resistant antibiotics and some other pathogens as well. So I can't really fault the healthcare system on this one. There's no way we're personally accountable or responsible for this. Well, you know, it sounds a bit harsh. Uh, could we have done better? Sure, we can always do better. But I, I don't think people were asleep at the switch on this one. What do you think about the information given to the, the community on the news and the reports and the updates? They have a lot of principals that are washing down lockers. They have schools that are on shutdown. Is any of this, is it correct? Does any of it make you uncomfortable or you think it's um, a little media inaccurate? Well, you know, the media play a dual role. On one hand, the media's attention on MRSA, both healthcare associated and the community, has definitely heightened awareness and led to, uh, I think, more of a public health effort and more attention in hospitals, schools, and elsewhere. On the other hand, media generally do not report these kinds of things in a dispassionate way, and they create an awful lot of anxiety, some of which is not well-placed and leads to things that can be uh, overreaction. So, for example, having MRSA on an athletic team is not a reason to close a school and scrub the floors. That's not going to make a difference. But it would be sensible if you're running an athletic program to do what hasn't been done widely in the past, which is to have a hygiene program for your athletes. Uh, you know, when the early outbreaks of uh, MRSA in football teams, rugby teams were reported, it was astonishing how little training people had in hygiene. Alcohol hand rubs weren't available. Wet towels were shared. The equipment was a mess, uh, filthy. And people didn't know what to do about uh, abrasions and cuts to keep the athlete safe. Even practices such as shaving, which is a known risk factor for MRSA, was encouraged not just to put on bandages when you tape yourself up, but even for cosmetics. All that leads to risk. If you've just joined us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson, and I'm speaking with Dr. Donald Goldman, and we're discussing community-acquired MRSA and our responsiveness. So with all the factors called into play and all the education, do you think we're getting better at addressing the infection control aspect? My kids told me in their school they're putting up those alcohol, water-free, hands-washing stations just randomly around the school. Well, you know, randomly putting things up is never a good idea. You right. put like them up where people are going to use No, them. middle of the hallway, between classrooms, they're just there. To me, that doesn't make much sense. However, I'd love to know what's happening in your child's sport room and what happens if your child is playing contact sports and gets a cut or an, an abrasion on the leg, how that's treated. So I'm hoping that some standards will begin to emerge and some public health recommendations. I know here in Massachusetts, the public health department sent out an extremely sensible and well-thought-out set of guidelines to schools to deal with MRSA, especially in the athletic programs. So what are some of those guidelines, or how should scratches and cuts on the field, which probably typically are wiped off or ignored in the past, how should it be addressed? Well, they should be thoroughly cleaned. Whether or not you use an antiseptic on them, I think, is not important as long as they're cleaned and covered. And then, of course, in the locker room itself, there ought to be clean towels, soap and water, alcohol, and a lot of guidance about not sharing things. I'm seeing a lot of patients coming in with their kids who have really scratches and cuts with some surrounding erythema, and they're saying, you know, we heard it's endemic in our area. I want you to look at them, and what should we do? And I think a lot of that is coming from the media, and there's a role of education, but you also don't want to send them away without, you know, teaching them something. This is a common problem, and I can speak better to what happens in emergency departments because uh, I'm in a hospital. I'm not out in primary care. But the way in which we approach potential staphylococcal infections definitely has changed. So if somebody comes in and they have a frank 
cellulitis or uh, boils or whatever, before we would have given uh, cephalexin as the drug of choice and or maybe a macrolide, cithromycin or erythromycin. That's not happening anymore. For sure, in a mild infection, clindamycin or gliacin is going to be given or, or some other drug that has a favorable spectrum against MRSA. And in anybody who's really ill, where staph is a consideration, we do two things. We, we're sure to get cultures, including nasal cultures, uh, to see if they're carriers. And it's it, pretty common to use vancomycin now. If I have one fault with primary care, it's to not get cultures. I mean, I've seen many kids who have a minor infection. They're thrown on Keflex or topical agent, uh, and no culture is done. And then when they come back and treatment's failed, we don't know whether it's uh, due to the natural progression of the infection or due to MRSA. So it's just unconscionable not to be trying to obtain some microbiology in these times. So you're saying if they come in, obviously, with scratches or wounds or anything that's pustular, yes, culture it. You're saying also do nasal swabs at the same time to see if they're carriers? Yeah, well, if there's not a good culture to be obtained, this is often the case mm-hmm. uh, in such patients. Yeah, you get a nose culture. And almost always the patient will be positive in the nose if they're positive on the skin. How do you define an endemic area? We spoke to some authorities who said if you're in a high risk or an endemic area, then you treat far more aggressively. If that's not your area, then, you know, you have no more risk than anyone else does for MRSA. Well, you know, the endemic areas are becoming more numerous pretty quickly. There was a study of the CDC of uh, emergency rooms across the country, and it looks like it's uh, getting unusual now not to have at least some MRSA in your community. But the key is to know what's going on in your area, and if there's not a lot of culturing going on, uh, you won't know. Certainly, if you get above a few percent in the population, people coming in with staph infection, a few or five percent or MRSA, you have to start thinking about a different antibiotic approach. More aggressive. Yeah, or different. You know, you just can't use your usual knee-jerk, cephalexin or oxacillin. So then the role of the primary care doc, if you're in an area that's having more increasing cases, is to culture what comes in, be more aggressive in your approach, and probably bring them back for follow-up. That's right, or certainly give very good instruction to the family as to what to look for. You know, again, I'm sure you see a lot of patients where it's just a little red because they've got a cut or an abrasion, and you have to use some judgment. I'd be really upset if the new knee-jerk reaction was everybody that has a little redness gets it's a, <laughs> antibiotic. Yeah, that would not help. A lot of times, time will tell, and it's wrong to imagine that everybody who gets an MRSA infection in the community is going to die of a terrible, uh, overwhelming infection. The vast, vast majority of patients who get colonized with MRSA in the community have no infection. And the vast majority of infected patients have a mild skin infection. So we just can't go nuts about this. We just have to be logical and practice good medicine with the help of families. So in addition to everything you told us today, if there's primary cares out there and they want more information, what's some good sources for them to turn to? I think the CDC is actually doing a great job. You know, their materials on the web are very up-to-date and quite good and are serving as guidance for many state health departments. I would also look to the state health department, depending on what state you're in. I haven't obviously canvassed them all. Uh, Local health departments may or may not be really up to speed. It depends on the health department. Every state's got a different organization for how they handle health at the local level. So uh, I'd start, I guess, by looking at the state or the CDC. So you've given us a lot of information. Um, Important points that I heard were to look and listen to your patient to see if your area is at risk, the number of cases there, to culture anything that you can culture. If it's not culturable, go to a nasal swab and bring them back for follow-up. Well, you know, there's there's one thing just to point out. Uh, some of us were alive in the 50s and 60s when we were, a yes. certain phage <laughs> types of staff became really rampant, you know, 80A, 1A, 50, 52A. 
these strains that are circulating now in the community have some genetic similarity to those strains. And those strains spread very, very widely, very fast. So I don't have a lot of hope, personally, that we're going to contain MRSA colonization in the community. I think it's cats out of the bag. If it goes away, it'll go away in part because of natural cycles and not so much because we get hysterical about it. That doesn't mean we can't practice common sense uh, hygiene and control in areas where people congregate, especially contact sports. Thank you. It's been great having you as a guest. Sure. My pleasure. I want to thank Dr. Donald Goldman, who's been our guest. We've been discussing community-acquired MRSA and our responsiveness. I'm Dr. Shira Johnson. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMDXM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email on this or any segment to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening to ReachMD XM157 and The Great Debate, a month-long special series and discussion on the future of public health policy in America.